This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Esau Macaulay, welcome to Viral Jesus. And I remember thinking, what happens if I flunk out and I got to go back home? Because I was in Scotland doing my PhD. I got to come back to America as someone who failed. I was thinking like, oh, this is going to be really, really embarrassing. How am I going to talk about this to my friends and family? And this is true. I would actually, this is back when I used to be able to run more than I do now. But I used to go on runs and I would listen to gospel music and actually Christian hip hop. And I would say to myself, literally as I was exercising, this is not the end of your story. And that one day when you finish this thing, you can use this season of your life as your testimony. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. As a professor of communication and rhetoric at Colorado Christian University, I spend most days talking to my students about the power of your own voice and using your voice to empower, encourage, uplift, and reflect. And at its heart, that's what Viral Jesus is all about. In every episode, we'll talk to Christian practitioners of communication and social media. But since the classroom is my first love, we'll also take a quick minute to dig into some of the fundamental concepts of the field. For instance, standpoint theory is one of my favorite lectures. Standpoint theory is one of my favorite lectures in communication theory courses. One of its major components is that listening to the accounts of the most marginalized individuals in a society or organization can give you a better understanding of how that society or organization operate. The outsider within phenomenon says that your standpoint in society, even a marginalized standpoint, can be exactly what allows you to point out patterns of behavior that those immersed in the dominant group culture would be unable to recognize because it serves them. So if you want to understand how to do, let's say church better, you don't talk to pastors and leaders. Standpoint theory would argue that you talk to those who are no longer attending or are halfway out the door. Their standpoint gives them a unique view. Our guest today is Esau McCauley, author of Reading While Black, a fantastic book that looks at the Bible from the African-American standpoint. So something that I love about you on my favorite social media app, which is Twitter, is that you bring yourself as a whole person when you log on to Twitter. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, this is very unique. And, and I think especially for theologians and for pastors, because there often comes this temptation, I think, to make yourself this like sage on a stage. And you don't do that. I feel like I can log in and see various snippets of who you are, and it just makes God feel more accessible to the everyday person that you do that? Well, it was, it was uh, people ask me a lot about my, my social media strategy. 
And my strategy is mostly like self-sabotage. <laughs> In the sense of like, I'm always trying to think of what kind of rule I can break. And so you're correct. I never wanted to, I mean, I didn't have, I mean, the other thing is that when something like, I guess works might be one way of putting it, it becomes like a method, but it wasn't like a strategy. It was something that I had. The, the truth of the matter is I first started doing social media a long time ago when me and, when my wife was in the military and we lived abroad. And so social media was literally a way for me to be to stay connected to my family um, when we were overseas. We were in Japan. Our family was back in America. So instead of emailing pictures, you would post it on social media. And so that was just always like my initial introduction to social media was like introducing people to my life. And so when I came over to Twitter, it was just like the same. And so you're correct. Whatever you see on Twitter is whatever is going on in that moment. In the sense of like, I could be working on a scholarly article. And so you could hear about Ephesians or I could be making dinner and you hear about like some random or I could be doing something with my children. And so I do just consider social media a way for me to be publicly like myself um, and all the variety. So it could be sports, there could be faith, it could be politics, a little bit less politics. But every now and then, I, you know, I'll drop a political hot take. So, yeah, I think. I try to show people as much as me as possible. Okay, wait, I have to ask a follow-up question to that. You stay away from politics. Why is that? What is that conscious choice online to maybe stay away from the political conversation? I don't stay away from politics. I try to be, I try not to be partisan. Okay. And so what I mean is like, I believe it or not, I have a field of expertise, which is biblical studies. So if I say something about the Bible, like don't come for me because I know, I know the stuff, right? As it relates to like a particular political policy, I'm re- I'm rarely well informed, and so what I say to my students is like there's a pressure on social media to be an expert about everything in like 20 minutes. Like oh prison reform, I got the solution. Oh the environment, oh immigration, and I just don't feel like I'm competent to have a strong opinion on whatever the internet is mad about because they don't give me like study notes. Okay, we're gonna be mad about this on Wednesday, so start reading up. So sometimes something will flash across my like timeline and I'll be like, that's interesting, but I don't have a well-formed opinion about it. And so I may have, I have certain principles that you will just see me reiterate all of the time. I mean, I don't think that you have to know like policy points to be able to recognize. Right. So I trust my, this, I trust my something isn't right instinct. I trust that really well. Um, I'm more cautious on like, here are the 15 steps to solve something. The other thing that's that, that, like is, is important, and, and forgive me, like Heather, your communications, right? Is that your that um, is area? my space? Okay, here's a yeah, it's your space. So here's the thing: I'm not an expert mm-hmm. in communication. So like sometimes when you are when you do something, people just assume that you're competent in all areas, right? And I actually try to model limited competency. And so I think as a Bible scholar, I am well equipped to articulate principles and, beg- and invite people to think about things. It is the job of the practitioners to sometimes think of the ways to bring these concepts into the lived experiences of people. And sometimes it's the job of communicators to take what the practitioners and the theologians are saying and get it out to the community in as efficient a way as possible. So I just don't think it's my job to do everything. And some people say, Esau, why aren't you talking about this, that, and the other? Well, because if I tweet about something and I then like choose to engage, because I got all the data. And I think there's, at least for me, and this is part of the academy, there's a higher standard of 
what you must be commented on to speak about it. So I recognize that mm-hmm. if I say something, people are assuming that I've thought about it more than a hot mm-hmm. take. And so when it relates to policy, um, I just think that Christians of goodwill can disagree. What I do try to say is there's certain aims and ends that we all ought to be trying to achieve. And so I'm much more comfortable talking about justice than I am arguing policy. I have friends who argue policy. Bring Justin Gibney on here um, in the end campaign, and they could talk to you policy until they're blue in the face. But that just isn't my area of expertise. I love that. I'm going to share with everybody one of your recent tweets. Are you okay with that? Go ahead. I mean, it's on the internet. Here we go. It's on the internet. It's public knowledge. So you say this. I don't think that there is better evidence of Jesus's divinity than the fact that his brother joined a community that worshiped him because y'all, that's a lot. That tweet got 2.8 thousand likes. And so you kind of talked with us a little bit about your approach to social media, but why do you think it is that people have so strongly connected to your voice? Uh, well, I mean, I think, I think because I don't take myself very seriously. Um, and I think that, I mean, if I can look at what people have seen or what I actually, it's about how I communicate. I have, I feel like the Bible communicates a certain theology of power. And I think that Jesus, it's very invitational and not as confrontational as he has to be. Wait, say that line again. Say that again. Jesus is invitational and isn't confrontational unless he had to be. That is good. Yeah. So if you look at like what Jesus is attempting, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is just going about his ministry and he knows about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but for the most part, he ignores them, right? And, if, and as you read towards the ends of the Gospel, it's a, it's a matter of rising conflict. And most of the time, you see the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him a bunch of questions. And then Jesus said, okay, if you're going to come for me, you know, here's the work. So he gives them the business. And so you see in most of these interactions in the Gospels, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a bad faith question, attempting to trap him or the Sadducees. And then Jesus responds. But Jesus's ministry is actually directed towards the people who need him the most. It's an invitation. This is what God is doing in the world. And it is only in so much as these people are beginning to hinge on Jesus's ministry. He goes, okay, I need to deal with y'all and then get back to work. And so what I try to do Mm. is to say, I'm not telling you that you have to be Christian. I would love it if you were a Christian, but here's how a Christian thinks about these things. I try to say, I'm not your, I mean, like, I'm not fundamentally attempting to like protect myself from you. I'm trying to show you what it's like to think these things through as a Christian. One of the things that I think was, was influential with me is that when I, I first started writing, and I still do, by the way, much love to Christianity today. I might send y'all an article <laughs> this week. Okay. Um, but I write, I write for both Christian audience and non-Christian audiences. And when I write for a Christian audience, I can kind of say the Bible says A, B, and C, therefore we should do C, B, and you know, whatever. But when I write for like a, a secular audience, the Washington Post and the New York Times, I can't say the Bible says. I have to invite them into a way of seeing the world. And saying, this is how I make sense of this mm-hmm. as a Christian. And so what I'm attempting to do then on social media is kind of a reflection of that. Sometimes I'm tweeting about, not in a directive way, here's something interesting that I see as a Christian about how we live. Here's an insight on the Bible passage like the one that you tweeted, um, that you quoted. And sometimes I'm saying, here's an invitation to see in the world. And I think that people are responding well to the invitation. The other thing, and I think that you, and I started to come to grips with this myself, is that I'm not just one thing. Um, I remember, like, there's this, there's this, this temptation to go, 
Like they say, if you want to succeed in the academy, just stay focused on the Bible. Stay in your lane. Only do what you're going to mm. do. F- work only from your expertise. But I said, I'm not just a Bible scholar. I enjoy literature. I enjoy art. I enjoy sports. But my Christianity infuses all of that. And so in my writing, which then comes into my social media, is that I actually what I would call leave my genre more than most other people who are New Testament scholars. So in other words, 90% of the articles that I write have nothing to do directly with New Testament scholarship. And so I think the fact that I'm, I, I, I cross genres that allow people to then see the more technical stuff, given that holistic thing, is also important. And so those are some of the reasons why I think. But to be honest, I don't know why y'all here, if you want to answer the true question about social media. Like, I t- literally, and I, I want to go back. <laughs> I think I think this is true. Something like um, 20,000. I, I this is the truth. I remember when um, reading while, actually, this might be important. When I signed the contract for Reading While Black, I think I had like 700 followers on Twitter. And the only reason I remember this is because when you, you know this, um, Heather, when you're signing a book contract, you got to give them all of the stats. Yeah. And so I didn't, I had more Facebook friends. I don't have a Facebook page. <laughs> I had more Facebook friends than I had Twitter. It's like Twitter is 700. That seems a little bit weak, but I have um, 3,000 like, personal friends. So please give me a book contract. <laughs> and so at the time I was thinking, okay, and this is like 2016, 2007, no, 2017, 2018. I said, if I can get to like 5,000 Twitter followers by the book release, then I'll be great. And so we're at the summer. And I'm, and so it actually did. I remember this part. We're at the summer um, before Reading While Black comes out. And and I, I realized this because this sounds weird, but it was my wife's birthday. <laughs> um, my wife's birthday, right before my wife's birthday, I wrote this article um, and it did really well. And there were 10,000 people who eventually became, like, I crossed 10,000 oh, wow. in on May the 29th of um, 2020. Oh, wow. It, yes. that Listen, that was in May of 2020. It is now, what is this? This is, um, what month we're are in we March. in? March. We're in March. March. There's like, I think it's like 33,000. Like, so I have like 23,000 followers since this summer. So I have no idea, like, what everybody's doing here. And I didn't have any brand management or attempt to grow it. It just kind of happened naturally. So whatever I'm doing, like you said, it seems to be resonating. But I didn't have a social media growth strategy. It just happened. So actually, that might lead into a question for me. What do you think is a misconception that people have about you or your ministry? I think that people, I think that people think that I'm controversial. Mm. that's like a really strange like phenomenon for me because like, well, actually it depends on the context within when I'm in a, a, a largely black space, I'm like relatively normal. Right. In the sense of, I just believe what we believe. And so like, there's never, I, I just never get accused by black people <laughs> of doing anything. And so it's, it's kind of disorienting when like people are saying like, I am dangerous. Like, how am I dangerous? I feel like I'm the most innocuous. <laughs> I mean, like, right. so like, in, of like the resistance to the some of the things that I talk about when I talk about African American biblical interpretation or the importance of your culture and context, it was like it was surprising that um, 
that people have been resistant to some of that stuff because I didn't think it as controversial. One of the examples that I talk about is when I say, here's African-American biblical interpretation, here's how the Black church informs my interpretation, and people just kind of freak out. This is very dangerous. And then I say to people, well, if you take any history class, just any class, they, they take a document and they say, in order to understand what's going on when the person said this, you need to understand their culture. Anyone who's ever studied the Reformation kind of goes, here's what's going on in Germany in the first century. And here's how what's going on in Germany affected what Luther said. And so when I say, hey, here's what's going on in America at the foundation of the Black church, and this leads to certain insights about the Bible, this is just like normal stuff. But people kind of freaked out (laughs) and thought I was tossing away the scripture. And so it's been really disorienting to be received really differently depending on the community that I was in. Um, wow. And so that's probably that's probably like one misconception. And I think, and this could be because of my um, the stuff that you said about me, Heather. I don't think some people know what my job is, but some people think I'm a pastor. <laughs> some people, you know, some people think that I'm a scholar. Some people think that I'm just like a public intellectual or whatever, whatever that is. And so I don't know if everybody knows what my job is. <laughs> I'm just this guy floating around the internet tweeting. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. So let me ask you, how do you see these conversations about race and the Black experience and the Black way or influence in reading the Bible play out on social media networks? Do you feel like it's the same play out as you would experience face-to-face with people or has it been intensified online? I think the internet is basically, here comes everybody. And what I mean, and it's caused all kinds of confusion. And, And this is what I mean. In our head, we have our own narrative world. Like these kind of people do this, these kind of people do that. Mm. And we think that everybody is, is operating within our narrative. And so what happens is when you throw everybody on the internet at the same time and ideas bump up against one another, someone says, oh, I heard Esau say this. Someone I knew says something like this. Therefore, they must mean that. You see what I mean? And so what you have is actually the clashing of different worlds and basically a series of sometimes misunderstandings or false assumptions. And so what I would say is that like a lot of what's right. going on is that is that people don't really understand the African-American context. And so when they hear a black person, they put them in one of the black roles that they can that they can imagine instead of allowing us to be whole and rounded people. One of the things so like for let me, for mm-hmm. example, we'll talk about something called critical race theory. I'm sure that some of your people have heard it. Yes. So this is the important part about this. Whenever you read about critical race theory. 
there's a long history of ideas beginning in Germany, working its way through time, and then beginning, ending with the United States. And they say, somehow Black people learned these ideas from these white Germans, and then they ended up saying this. And that's the only way they can imagine that we got any ideas about racism and injustice. And like none of them, like none of them. Listen, Heather, I've said this 50,000 times on 50,000 podcasts. Find me the person who actually chases the development of Black ideas through the Black church up to the present day, traces also the development of ideas in Germany, which I can actually do, (laughs) and talk about the differences, right? And say, here's how a Black person could come to something similar to what someone from Germany might have said before a different set of reasons. But because they know nothing about Black Christianity, they can only put us in these certain roles. And so one of the things that social media does then is they find people who play the stereotypical role of the villain and they say, here's the bad guy. And so I come and get them. And so most people who um, who are yelling at me literally have no idea what they're talking about. And so that's the interesting thing. I was like, sometimes I don't like the guy that you guys are mad at too, but that guy isn't me. And so I think that what I see in social media is, and then there is one of the other things is, I think there's a real policing of black voices on social media. Almost like a plant, like it's like people think that they're really in charge of black people. Can I say plantation mentality? Like they really think they're in charge of black people. I'm like, somebody invite you over here. This this my feed. Like I don't even know you. you you're wrong. <laughs> like, I could be, but this ain't for you. And so, like, the idea that people have the right to police Black voices. You know what I don't do? I don't go around on the internet and find people to disagree with. (laughs) I just don't do it. Like, literally, if we have a different worldview and you are tweeting from that, like, 99% of the time, that's just, like, that's y'all lane. And so I think one of the things that we have then is social media has and entrepreneurship in general has removed the cultural control that certain people had over ethnic minority voices and the voices of women, and they just can't handle it. Because now the people are deciding, and the gatekeepers are no longer, like, you can't keep the gate when there's a thousand points of entry. Mm. And so you have a, a, a real attempt then to find dangerous voices and stop them. Right. Say to people, don't trust this person, even though we're, even if we're trustworthy, because like, they think that they are the arbitrators of orthodoxy. And literally nobody did it. One of the things that I said is that like champion of orthodoxy is on Twitter is not an ecclesial position in my denomination. My denomination is not appointing anybody <laughs> to be the champion of orthodoxy on social media. In my denomination, I got a bishop. And if I say something bad, you know who's allowed to tell me to stop? My mm. bishop. You know who else has authority over me? None of y'all. And so, like, I just don't understand why people think that they can, like, pastor me, like, online. And I think that you see the same thing of people trying to not just pastor, exercise ecclesial discipline over Black voices for what are often analyses of culture, right, that people are treating as theological heresies. And so I think that you see that a lot online. And I think that, and and this is one, this is the other thing, Heather, and this is actually how me and you became friends. And I have a theory, Heather. Can I tell you about the theory? Please. I think, I think, Heather, that what 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 Twitter has done is reunited the Black diaspora. And what I mean is this. There are tons of conversations that you used to be able to have kind of with your friends or wherever. 
you'd have it at the barbershop, you'd have it at the beauty shop, you'd have it in high school. But once you graduate, at least for me, I don't know where you grew up. I grew up in a largely African-American context. And so once I graduated and left, I was no longer in an all-Black space because like most businesses and most higher education institutions are majority white. That's not bad. I'm in an interracial relationship, so this is not anti-white. I'm just saying like Black culture as a unified experience is no longer the common case once you reach adulthood and you go into the world. Some people are, but not most people aren't. Most people work in majority white um, institutions. So what does that mean? That means that all of the cultural conversations that you used to have, you can't have them easily. So you actually have them on social media. So you see like certain like black conversations sweep through like they call black Twitter. Mm. Like grits is one of them. It just kind of flows through. And there's a sense of welcome there because you're having this conversation. Oh, isn't it great to talk about, you know, what it was like to love Aretha Franklin when you were, you know, like these kinds of conversations are a sense of community. But the problem is we're having these conversations publicly right. and other people are listening in. And they sometimes don't understand what black people are talking about because they don't understand black culture. And so you have this, like, what's going on? Or is this? And so like, there's just a lot of people listening in to something, not fully understanding and jumping into it. Am I right about the black diaspora on social yes, media? Yes, absolutely. And Kyle James Howard, I, I love him too. And he tweeted, I think it was today I saw it where he said, you know, I don't understand why everybody feels the need to respond to me if you don't like what I'm saying, because all day on Twitter, what you see is thoughts that you don't agree with. And it seems so exhausting to have to go to all those accounts that I don't agree with and say, here's why you're wrong. And I just say, save your energy and tell people what you do believe in rather than argue with everybody about what they don't believe in or what they you think they're wrong about. I, I think, Heather, I could be wrong that I've never tweet dunked on someone. Yeah. I just don't think I've ever done that. We're like, basically, hey, community, here's a person to hate. Don't we all hate them? Yeah. And I guess this is the other, there's different ways to build a social media platform. Not that we're attempting to do it, but it's just that it occurs. The quickest way is to hate the right things. Mm-hmm. There's always a community that exists, basically rooted in anger, where you can just say, here's something horrible. And if you say, here's something horrible, it's easy to get re- retweets. But the way that you get them is the way that you keep them. So if you have a grievance profile, then like that has to manifest itself. And me personally, I know it doesn't seem like it because I'm actually not personally combative. And so like, it's not always good for my soul to always be in a Mm -hmm. posture of fighting. Sometimes I feel like in order to have my own integrity and to stand for the people who are marginalized, I have to say something. Right. right, That's going to have an edge to it because I just feel like it's necessary to do so. But my primary goal on social media is to say, as best and authentically as I can, here's how through my lived experiences, you can point to Jesus. And so when I talk about self-sabotage as being like a part of my strategy, I'm really serious in the sense of, I don't want to ever present something that's not authentic. So sometimes I say, you know what? People aren't going to like this, or this is way too Christian. Because there's also a way of growing your social media platform by like the Jesus in your stuff. So periodically I'm going to go, I'm going to say like something real Jesus-y even if it means a certain group of people aren't going to love me. I'm going to say something really kind of important that I feel about race and injustice, even if people are going to leave for that. And so I'm just really comfortable with saying there has to be, like, what's the point of any of this if you're not being authentic? And being authentic means that sometimes you have to pay the price in a variety of ways. 
instead of like reading the tea leaves. Can I give you, here's, here's a great social media Bible chapter, Bible section. This would be good for the Viral Jesus podcast. All right. You know, the, you know the story in the Gospels. I love one of my favorite stories. When the disciple, Jesus is having an argument with the Pharisees and they ask Jesus a question. And Jesus says, well, you answer my question, then I'll answer yours. Where did John the Baptist, John the Baptist baptism, where did it come from? From God or from men? The thing that I love about that story is the Pharisees go and have a committee meeting. And they said, if we say from man, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? And if we say from God, well, actually, if we, say, if we say from man, then the people are going to get upset. If we say from God, they're going to say, why didn't you believe him? And they said, there was no good answer to the question. It didn't hurt their followers, right? Because the actual, the actual question isn't what is true. It is what is the reaction of the crowd. And so I say to people all of the time, and they actually say to Jesus, let me finish the story. They say, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer you either. But mm-hmm. I say to pastors and people all of the time as it relates to social media, the moment that the question becomes not whether or not this is true, but what is the reaction of the crowd? You cease to be a leader, and now you're just an articulation of a consensus. Mm-hmm. And that's all that you're doing, then what's the point? Right? It's not simply saying, look at all of these different factors. And what's going to get me the most likes by the most people? It is saying, well, what is true? And how can I live out that truthfulness in the most wise fashion possible? And so that's at least how I try to live my social media life. Let me ask you a question that I ask People that I deem to be successful, I love asking this question because I think it's really helpful as we mentor the next generation into their successes. Did you always know where God was taking you? And if the answer to that is no, can you talk us through that process? How did you become Dr. Esau Macaulay? And did you always know that God was leading you to where you're sitting right now? I had zero idea about where God was going to lead me. Like every single bit of, like the fact that I'm on this podcast, it's a surprise. Um, I will say that like, and this will sound really weird. I was never, I am not, and was never career oriented. I grew up in a broken home. And what I only thing I ever wanted to be was a husband and a father. Those are my two life goals. Because I knew what it was like to see my mom grow up, grow up without a, someone to treat her well. And I said, when I grow up, I'm going to love my wife as best as I can. I know what it was like to like what the ache was in my heart not to have a father. And so my goal in life was to say, like, literally, y'all think I'm playing. I want to be a husband and a father. And, and, and I want to do those things well. So when my first, we have four children now, but when my first son was born, I was good. Everything else is extra time. All of this. So if, if it goes away, it just goes away. Now, I always thought that I was going to be a preacher because um, I thought I was a decent communicator. I didn't think that I was a good writer at all. I thought that I could like speak well enough to make my halting words somewhat useful. And so I planned on being a preacher. I tried to tell their story really quickly, but my wife wanted to be, people should hear this. Like my wife wanted to be a missionary um, overseas. And since like, once again, I'm about marriage and family. I said, sure, you know, I'll go overseas to be a missionary, but I don't want to be a pastor overseas because they can do it better. So I'll go and get a PhD and train pastors overseas. And so that's the reason why I got my PhD. But for a variety of reasons, by the time I finished my PhD, my wife didn't want to be a missionary anymore. So she said, can you find a job in the academy back here in the States? 
So I said, sure, I'll apply for jobs back in the States. I applied for a job. And then I ended up going from there to now coming to Wheaton College. I'll say something about my writing career. When I was applying for, I was getting ready to apply for jobs. The um, And this relates to the social media stuff that I talked about earlier. We were told to keep our heads down if you wanted to get a job in the academy. Don't say anything. Don't be too controversial. After you get tenure, you can say what you want. And I said, well, no, Black people are dying. I'm not going to just wait until, this is like 2016, 2015, 16, 17. And I said, I'm just not going to wait to get tenure before I say anything that matters. I'm going to do the opposite. And so that was when I began to um, just write. And I started off on a blog. So I'm saying, I'm going to write about stuff that matters while I do my academic work. So I started off on my own personal blog. Most of these articles are gone because they were trash. <laughs> so I wrote there. And then eventually a group blog called The Living Church said, hey, Esau, would you write something for me? And I said, sure, I'll write something for you. So I joined a group blog. This is like back when group blogs, which I don't, they could still be a thing, but they were a much bigger thing about five to seven years ago. I did that for like a year, and then eventually um, I got connected to Christianity Today. On the year, on the day that, and I and I wrote an article in Christianity Today, and I thought I had made it. Listen to me, you couldn't tell me nothing that first time that they had Esau McCauley Christianity Today on the cover. I, I screenshotted it. <laughs> I screenshotted it, and so then I kept writing for Christianity Today. And one day, somebody from the Washington Post reached out to me and said. Do you have, like, will you write something for us? So then I wrote something in the Washington Post. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. So then, and this is, and I, my, my article in the Washington Post, to give you a timeline, my first one was October 2019. 2019. And then shortly thereafter, no, 2018, October 2018. And then um, somewhere in there, sometime in October, one of these years, I, pandemic has destroyed my concept at the time. A few years <laughs> I ago. understand. So eventually the New York Times reaches out to me and they say, would you write an article? And, and the first article, and this is interesting for students to kind of think about staying in your lane. They say, would you write an article about reparations? And I said, actually, I don't know enough about reparations to write the article. Will you send it? I sent them to introduce them to a friend of mine. And I said, if I do have an idea, can I reach out to you later? Which seems crazy, like the idea that you would turn down an opportunity to be in the New York Times, but I just didn't think I could write the article. A couple of months later, I do write, um, I have an idea called The Bloody Fourth Day of Christmas. And I pitched that article to them and they like it. And then a few months later, I pitched another article to them um, about actually, this is literally a year ago, the coronavirus. That was my second article with, um, in the New York Times. And then after that, I have a connection. They, I write another article about George Floyd and they say to me, will you, um, consider coming on as a monthly columnist. So now, like people think of me as like New York Times monthly columnist as if that was some goal that I was achieving to. But literally I started off on a blog that I published because I cared about what's happening in the community. The same thing can actually be said about the book that I wrote, Reading My Black. I had no idea it was going to be this popular. It's actually radically different than the first book that I wrote when I when I joined when I when I got my PhD. The first book is super technical. But once again, if I felt like there were certain things happening in the black community and I needed to talk about them in a way that like was hopeful and was rooted in the gospel. But when I wrote that book, there were no other books like this in the sense of having the particular shape and series of concerns that combine the Bible, black history, and memoir. 
all into one. And so there was no model for that. There is no model for, like, I'm not saying I'm the first person to write about Black biblical interpretation, but the particular form was unique. And so now it looks like it was my vision to have this public square ministry that includes both biblical interpretation and public theology. But at each point along the way, I was just trying to do the thing that God put in front of me. And he seems to have blessed it. And so if I could say to people, it's like some people have a place to say they're going to end up here. And they kind of say, this is how we're going to get there. I know that people spend their entire lives trying to get a monthly column in the New York Times, and I stumbled into one. But that's what happened. And so, like, it, if you had asked any, I'd literally, I literally didn't even know how one would do something like this. And so I would say to, to people who, who really care, if God puts something on your heart to do it, pursue it. Now, be wise. You need to have, like, this was not, I don't pay my, I don't pay my bills by doing New York Times columns. I never, like the blog was not my source of income. I had a job, right? And a passion. And sometimes those things aren't necessarily the same thing. So if I could say one piece of advice to anyone who's listening, is if you have a passion, pursue it. And who knows what God might use, might 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 do with it. Thanks to Esau for being our inaugural guest on Viral Jesus. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral. And this is where I scour the Viral Jesus hashtags on all of our social channels and look for a message from someone who maybe you haven't heard of yet, but you should definitely be following as they grow viral. Today, we talk to Darina Williamson. Serena Williamson is the author of a set of children's books that helps parents introduce conversations of race and faith. Her books, Colorful, Thoughtful, and Graceful, are just fantastic must-purchase books that every parent should have to teach their kids about how to be thoughtful and colorful rather than colorblind. I am so excited to introduce you to Dorina Williamson. Well, hello, Darina. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Oh, what an honor to talk with you and kind of virtually meet you, Heather. <laughs> I know, after all this time that I've been following you on Twitter. So it's nice to finally meet you. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, all right? I'm going to read a quote that you have on your website at DorinaWilliamson.com for those who want to know. It's a quote that you say inspired you to put together your most recent books. And so I want to share it with everybody. It's by Toni Morrison, and it says this, If there's a book you want to read but hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. So can you share with us a bit about the types of books you write and why you just knew, I have to do this. I have to be the one that tells this story. Well, I love that quote by Toni Morrison, and it inspired and validated the passion that welled up in me as I raised four Black children in the South, and as I wanted to pass down to my children the values that we cherished. I had to, one, get books that reinforce my faith with representation that did not look like my children. And then when I wanted to reinforce to them the beauty of who they were and their God-given design, I had to pick up books with representation that looked like them. And I wrote books that I would have read to my children that give them both wonderful values that are faith-based, but that are also universal with representation of children that not only look like my four beautiful brown children, but children around the world. 
Well, I have just enjoyed talking to you. You are just as wonderful as I assumed you would be. Where can our listeners find you? What social media handles do you have? I would love for people to connect with me on Instagram at Darina Williamson. I am also on Facebook at Darina McFarland Williamson. And then I'm also on Twitter at Darina Will. And as you mentioned earlier, folks can reach out to me through my website, DarinaWilliamson.com. Thank you so much, Darina, for joining us on Viral Jesus. That's it for this episode. Viral Jesus is brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Join us next time as we talk to blogger and best-selling author, Christina Kuzmik. See you next time on Viral Jesus. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.